0: self interests and internal lusts. We all know the power of pursuing our own demands of our inner man, prone to rely upon and pursue what you want. You know in the depths of your being the powerful urge in all things to live for self, to do what you want to do, to indulge you. To seek your own interests, no matter the cost it might be, to anyone else. To please no one but you at the cost of everyone. It's the power of self that lies behind every sin and sin's effect upon every part of your life. Every annoyance, every complaint, every unmet responsibility, every stroke of laziness, every urge of coveting. Every broken relationship, every problem in your life and in society at large, every difficulty in your marriage or your family life, every waste of time, every lie or deceitful maneuver, every ungodly touch or swipe on your phone, everything in essence that is wrong with your life and with my life can be traced back to this pervasive problem of the self. The sinful self. This truth is clearly presented all throughout Scripture. Romans 2 verse 8 tells us that those who are self-seeking do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness. Romans 6 6 tells us that apart from Christ, we are enslaved to our sinful self. It's calling the shots. It is our master. We obey its every command. 1 Timothy 5 verse 6 speaks of a woman who is self-indulgent, always driven by pleasing the flesh, and that text describes her as dead while she lives. She is a dead woman walking in accord with the flesh. James 5, the rich are confronted for living their lives in luxury and self-indulgence, Paul says in Romans 8 that if you live according to the flesh, then you set your mind on the things of the flesh, which commit, lead you to commit corruption and the pollution of death. If we set our minds on the flesh, he goes on to say that we are then hostile to God, Romans 8 and verse 7. We do not and cannot submit to the law of God. And he tells us in verse 8 that if that is true of us, if we are about the flesh and giving our mind to the things of the flesh and walking in disobedience to the law of God, then we cannot please God. It is impossible. Galatians 5 verse 17 says that the desires of our flesh are against the desires of the Spirit of God. They are on opposing hills in a military battle ready to do it hard in war against each other. Galatians 5.19 tells us that the works of the flesh are wicked and vile. Galatians 6, we're told that we cannot live according to our flesh without consequence. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that will he also reap. If he reaps to the flesh, he will from the flesh reap what? Corruption. Death. Evil. Evil. Ephesians 2 describes our pre-conversion state as living in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and our mind. 1 Peter 2 verse 11 calls us to abstain from the passions of our flesh because they wage war against your very soul. The core of your existence, your flesh, is waging war against the real and true Eternal you. When the Apostle John confronted the great evil in the world, in 1 John 2, he tells us, Do not love the world or the things of the world. As he told us that, he did not bore down into things outside in the world that you don't know anything about. He drilled down into the very core of your heart and he exposed the love of the world in the depth of your being as the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. And he says those are of the world. Do not love the world in that way. Do not give yourself over to the sinful self. This powerful self is at the root of our sinful rebellion. This is what happened in the Garden of Eden when our first parents questioned God's command and decided to do what they wanted to do. It was a a declaration of independence, human independence against our creator and maker. We now are self-autonomous. We are self-reliant, self-sustaining, self-sufficient. Thank you, God, we've got it from here. And this is the root of of the evil of our sinfulness. This is the bottom line of the bottom line of mankind's problem. It is the sinful self. Declaring ourselves independent of God, selfishly going our own way, under our own authority, for our own purposes, according to our own plans, for our own pleasure. That's heavy, but it leads us to John 12. Because that reality so easily, so easily gets mixed into the recipe of coming to faith in Christ. Many people approach God with this underlying selfishness, driving their religious interest. They hear of the joys of heaven and of, of the forgiveness of sins. They of the condemnation they deserve and they're told to simply pray and tell Jesus you want him to come into your life and save you from your sins and voila in this exchange everything's better and eternity is secure and they go on from there claiming to be Christians saying they are followers of Christ all the while they are actually just using Christ to meet some personal felt need meeting some self interest this is relatively easy to do it's a quite popular approach to the gospel it's easy to draw a crowd with that kind of preaching of christ you're immediately their friend you're never their enemy by telling them jesus will solve all your problems just believe in him and it all goes away and you will be right with god and eternally secure in his eternal heaven and it will be great and grand and you play on their selfishness. You appeal to their self-indulgence. Comes out in the form of self-made religion and vigorous efforts to be close to God, to have a life that looks quite impressive, spiritually speaking, one that externally other professed believers are jealous of but in reality underneath it all there's this cancer in the bloodstream of their spirituality that has never been dealt with and this cancer is the sinful self it's easy to look externally like we're close to the Lord like we're doing great like all the spiritual boxes are in line they're stacked neatly and they're all in order and life is going great While in reality, internally, we're dying of the cancer of our own self-indulgence. And we actually don't know Christ at all. This is what Jesus said to the Pharisees in Matthew 23 and verse 25 in his seven woes spoken in that chapter. Before they would crucify him on a Roman cross, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self indulgence. In other words, you do all these religious things outwardly, externally. You make it look good to hide what is going on internally. It's just another way for you to get what you want, it's self indulging. In our text in John 12, we find the clear teaching from Jesus on this very issue. Jesus is at the height of his popularity. He's just been lauded by the crowds. Jerusalem is in an uproar about Jesus coming to Jerusalem at Passover. They've met him on his way into Jerusalem on the colt of a donkey. They have proclaimed his praises. They've cried out to him, save us, Lord. What they mean is be our king and our champion, overthrow Rome, establish your throne in Jerusalem and rule from a Jewish throne in a Jewish nation over all the nations of the world. They saw what Jesus did for Lazarus and they were convinced that Jesus could do something so much more for them and for all of Israel. Jesus at this moment is so wildly popular that the Jewish authorities themselves are saying the whole world is going after him. We're losing our place and our power. He is becoming more prominent than us. He's an unstoppable figure among the crowds. I said this to you last week. It bears repeating. This, there is no more popular moment in Jesus' ministry than between John 20 and. 19 and John 20 or John 12 19 and 12 20 there's no more popular moment than right there everyone in the populace the general crowd of Jerusalem is thinking he is king material and so it is into that context we find what happens next in our text look at verses 20 to 26 of John 12 I'm going to start reading in verse 19 19 To set the stage. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks, speaking of the world. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Pray with me, would you? Father in heaven, we ask that you would take this, your word, and encourage and edify and exhort your people. I pray that you would keep me from in any way hindering, harming, or hurting the faith of your beloved. Use this text to encourage them, to strengthen their resolve to be crucified with Christ. I pray for those among us who do not really, truly know Christ, who have sought him for their own self-interest and to accomplish their own self-promotion, absent of any thought of being crucified with him. Lord, we pray that you would remove the blinders from their eyes through this text and bring them to true and saving faith. We pray this dependent upon your spirit, confident of the fulfillment of your promises, that you will honor your word and build your church. In Jesus' name, amen. John does not tell us for sure when this encounter happened in verses 20 to 26. It happened sometime after the triumphal entry we just got finished talking about and sometime before the Last Supper, which will happen in John 13 or start to happen in John 13. So sometime between Sunday and Thursday evening of Jesus' Passion Week, we have the account of verses 20 to 26. We know from the other Gospels, after he triumphantly entered into Jerusalem, he then went into the temple courtyard. I believe he left, came back on Monday, cleansed the temple on Monday, and made a statement that this is not to be a house of man's Uh, gaining money and financial gain is to be a house of prayer for the nations. As he does that, then he sets up shop in the temple courtyards and he starts to teach truth. Dynamic, clear, bold truth. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees all come to him and they seek to question him and catch him in his words, and he, one after the other, dismantles their arguments and stands on the truth of the word and proclaims himself to be the true Messiah. Somewhere in the mix of all that, there's this contingent of Greeks who came to seek Jesus. It's a really interesting text, isn't it? Just think about it. You you don't actually know if Jesus ever talked to them. Did he ever answer them? Did he he ever have an audience with these Greeks? We don't really know. But their question sparks something in Jesus to launch into this spirit-inspired and spirit-captured statement of truth about what it means to follow Jesus. I want to walk you through the text by pointing you to the truth sought the truth stated, the truth illustrated, and the truth applied. The truth is sought in verses 20 to 22. These Greeks come and seek an audience with Jesus. John tells us that they were among those who were at the feast to worship. But he also says that they were Greeks. So they're not Jewish people. They're of Gentile Greek descent. Throughout scripture, the the Greeks are those who are cultured and refined. They're the ones who are the, the thinkers and the the cultural elites in Roman society. Greek culture and thought dominated the Roman world. The language was the trade language. Latin was the language of the Romans and Hebrew the language of the Jews, but the language of the Greeks had stood the test of time and had become the lingua franca, the, the common language, the common tongue of the day. Greek culture impacted every Sphere of life. For example, as you think of Jesus' disciples, many of them being from the northern part of Israel known as Galilee, they were marked by Greek culture. This northern part of Galilee was a part that was along a major trade route that went through Greek-dominated sections of the world. It also bordered up to to Greek-dominated, heavily populated areas. So these Galilean Jews, these fishermen, had to learn not just the Hebrew of the synagogue, but the Greek of the marketplace. If they wanted to function in life, if they wanted to sell their fish, they wanted to make a living, they had to know Greek, and they knew Greek. And many of them spoke that Greek language, but also many of them had Greek names, like Philip and Andrew. Those are not Hebrew names. Those are Greek names. Most Greeks, however wanted nothing to do with the monotheistic religion of the Jewish people. They looked down their nose at these people. How could they be so prudish, so wrong, so deceived to think that there is but one God and his name is Yahweh? Most Greeks liked their polytheism, their many gods, and their idolatrous practices. It dominated their culture and their thought about life. But among some of them were God-fearers, the book of Acts tells us about these. Cornelius was one of them in Acts 10. A Gentile by birth, a citizen of the Roman Empire, but one who had heard of Jehovah God and who feared Jehovah God, who, who knew something enough to know that's probably the right God. They weren't yet full proselytes. They hadn't gone through the process of becoming a Jew. They weren't welcomed into the worship of the, the Jews at the temple, but they were God-fearers. And so they would come once in a while to a feast and kind of watch and see what's going on and see if they could learn more about this Jehovah they've heard about and presumably fear in their heart. So here in John 12 are these God-fearing Greek ancestry Gentiles in Jerusalem at Passover. And they start hearing stories about this prophet from Nazareth, from a region they're familiar with, Galilee. And they start hearing more of what he's been doing, and they they especially hear about his most amazing miracle, his most astounding miracle, his most jaw-dropping moment, the raising of Lazarus from the dead four days in the tomb. And then they hear the noise and the celebration of a big crowd on Sunday going out to meet who knows who, all of a sudden everyone's screaming and crying in the streets and children are singing the praise songs of the Hallel Psalms of Psalm 113 to 118 and praise of this one entering the city. And they start wondering, as God-fearing Greeks, who is this? And what is this all about? And we're here seeking truth. Maybe Maybe this guy, this prophet from Nazareth that everyone else esteems, maybe he's our ticket into the truth. Maybe he's the one who can settle all this for us and help us figure it all out. We need to talk to him. And that became nearer unto impossible with the crowds that were around Jesus in the temple square. And so somewhere along the way, we don't know when, I, I don't have any way to prove this, but I think it's after Jesus cleanses the temple And he says, this is not going to be a a house of merchandise and of merchants. It's going to be a house of prayer. You remember what he says next? For all the nations. You're not going to make this a, a place to raise money and make money. This is a place to pray to Yahweh God, not just for Jewish people, but for every nationality. I think these Greeks either were within earshot or they heard the stories and they thought, we need to talk to that guy. What did he mean by that? We're those people. We're the all-nations people. How do we get on the inside? They're seeking truth. They want to know what Jesus has to say about what is true. And so where do they go? They seek for Jesus. How do they seek for Jesus? They seek for one of Jesus' followers. One who looks like and talks most like them, But one whom they know knows Jesus. They first go to Philip of Bethesda, or excuse me, Bethesda of Galilee. They see him. His skin, his appearance makes it clear he's from Galilee. He's not one of these high and and prissy uh, Jerusalem Jews. He's from Galilee. He's He's our kind of guy. He's a common guy, he's a fisherman. Let's go talk to him. Philip leaves from there and goes to talk to Andrew. Andrew and Philip together go and talk to Jesus. As we have learned throughout John's gospel, Andrew and Philip are the outward-looking disciples. They're the ones of the 12 who are are looking for others to minister to, and they're they're always bringing people to Jesus. So in chapter 1, when Jesus calls Philip to follow him, you remember Philip's first reaction? He follows him, and then he goes and gets Nathanael. Excuse me, he goes and get, am I getting that right? goes and get Andrew. Read it later, you'll figure it out. He goes and gets somebody and says, we have found the true Messiah. And then Andrew, the same thing, when he is called by Jesus, he goes and gets his brother Peter. I've got it right. Philip went and got Nathaniel. There we go. I knew it would come around. Remember then in chapter six, the hungry crowds are in the wilderness without food. And Andrew and Philip are the ones who are questioned by Jesus and say, hey, we know this boy who's got food. It's not much. What are five loaves and two fish? But it's something, They're looking outside of the circle for others, and they bring him to Jesus. Here in chapter 12, the Greeks find them and ask for some time with Jesus. And notice Philip and Andrew don't have the answers, but they know who does. They don't necessarily know what to say to these Greeks who are seeking Jesus. They know they are not the truth, but they know who is the truth. They couldn't perform miracles, but they knew one who was able to. They couldn't grant life to the Greeks. But if anyone could, it would be their master, their Lord, their teacher, Jesus of Nazareth. Remember who came to see Jesus in Bethlehem after his birth? It's sometime within the first two years after Jesus was born, his star, divinely appointed, and I think miraculously, supernaturally moved to be over Bethlehem, rose, and came to rest over the place where Jesus was born Do you remember who came because that star moved? Wise men from the east. These are not Jewish fellows. These are God-fearing Gentiles who have heard, probably through the words of the prophet, that there is coming a Messiah whose star will rise in the sky. They know the stars well enough that they know that this star is different and unique. It draws them to seek Jesus, they seek him and they worship him. Now at the end of Jesus' life, before his death, who is seeking Jesus? Wise men from the west. At his birth, it was wise men from the east, from Persia. Near his death, it's wise men from the west, from the lands of the Greeks. Notice it's in the context of Jesus' own people rejecting Jesus. Foolishly, not wanting to lose their place of power and prestige and prominence. They've denied what's undeniable, they've ignored what's unignorable. They've refused to admit that this Jesus who raised Lazarus from the dead is the Messiah. And so they start plotting a way to kill Jesus and keep their power. And in the face of that unbelief and that rejection, who seeks Jesus? You don't seem as excited about that as I am. What in the world is going on in John 12? By the end of Tuesday, everyone in Jerusalem is like, I want nothing to do with Jesus. He has stepped on every religious toe in the room no more than that he's cut out every religious knee in the room they're all laying on the ground licking their wounds wondering what is going on and who is this man and in that context people who know very little know enough to know that i need an audience with him i need to know this jesus They may may not have come for the right reasons. They certainly did not have all their theological T's crossed properly. But they knew they needed to know Jesus. The Pharisees concerned that the whole world was going to go after Jesus. They spoke more than they knew, didn't they? They were speaking of the prominence and the popularity and the unstoppable power of Jesus that would come from the crowds going after him. But they spoke an unthinkable prophecy that actually, yes, now the tide has turned. And the mercy and grace of God to bring salvation to lost souls has been transitioned from focus upon the Jewish people who have just rejected it in wholesale to the Greeks, the Gentiles, the, the people groups around the world who have no claim on his grace No covenant to go to to say, you must be kind to us because you said. They're simply welcomed in by his great universal love for all people. That's the truth sought. Listen then to the truth stated in verses 23 and 24. He tells them in response to their inquiry, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. The idea is that the hour has arrived and is continuing. It's a perfect tense verb. It's an ongoing thing with Jesus. He's going to say it again in chapter 13 and chapter 17 that his hour had come. But it's a significant shift in John's gospel. We've come across this idea in chapter 2 in chapter 7 and in chapter 8 where Jesus resisted and said it is not yet my hour. The appointed hour has not yet come. Remember in chapter 7 and 8, they were especially trying to arrest him and take him to the cross and get rid of him. And he escaped their grasp because it was not his hour. Now in John 12, there's this shift. The hour has come. Now if you're the Greeks in this moment, just put yourself in that context. You hear Jesus say this. For the hour has now come for the Son of Man to be glorified. You are getting a little excited at this point. Son of man is the term from Daniel 7 speaking of the universality of the authority of the Messiah. It's a term of the ancient of days bestowing authority on the God-man, the Messiah, giving him authority to rule the whole earth in Daniel 7. And so he says in response to their inquiry, the hour has come for the son of man, the universal, authoritarian, kingly, ruling monarch over all, It is his hour to be glorified. From a human perspective, where are you going with that? You're a Greek listening to him say that. You've seen and heard of all his power and prestige, and you think immediately, oh, this is great. We showed up at just the right time. He's going to take his throne, he's going to deal a blow to all wicked rulers of the earth. He's going to establish his kingdom and it's going to be a kingdom for all people and we're going to be the first Greeks in the door. They saw a glimpse of Jesus' glory in raising Lazarus and hearing the stories and now they see a statement about further glory. The hour has come for that glory. But then in verse 24 it shifts and the wind goes out of their sails as Jesus says, no, let me tell you what kind of glorification I'm speaking of. I'm not talking about a coronation. I'm talking about a crucifixion. So he says to them, truly, truly, I say to you. It's Jesus' standard way, especially in the Gospel of John, to get your attention and say, now listen to me. You're not seeing it rightly. You're not listening. You're not hearing it accurately. You're thinking wrongly. You're believing wrongly. Truly, truly, I say to you, this is what's true. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. They're ready for a coronation. He predicts a crucifixion. This is the hour that's here, the hour of glorification through execution. And he states the truth plainly through that metaphor, that word picture from real life this grain of wheat falling into a ground, dying and bearing much fruit. He is speaking as plainly and as truly and as obviously as you can speak about his coming death. He is making known to them that he is about to die and through his death, he will produce much fruit. The insinuation is that he could resist his death He could receive the applause of men. He could ascend the throne of mankind's wishes and will. And he would save his immediate life and lose it for the purposes and plans the Father sent him to do. But beloved, he came to save the world. He came to love the world. This is something John's gospel has been replete to tell us. John 1, John the Baptist sees Jesus coming and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who has come to take away the sin of the world. John 3, Jesus talking with Nicodemus, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Chapters 8 and 9, he said, I am the light of the world. Now in chapter 12, he says, I have come to the hour of my glorification, which is for the world. The request of the Greeks shifts, triggers something with Jesus, shifts his focus. And he makes plain that God's saving work is going to be for much more than the Jews, for Jew and Greek together. As the Apostle Paul will make clear, the blood of the cross of Jesus will make peace with God for Jew and Gentile alike. And that dividing wall of partition between Jew and Greek that kept the Greeks out of the worship of God and oneness with God and blessing from God will be Tore down, is tore down by the broken body and shed blood of Jesus. And now as Ephesians 2 says, we are now together as one in the body of Christ. Jew and Greek together, the distinctions are gone in Christ because we are all welcomed by him. Giving himself to secure the salvation of people throughout all the ages from every tribe and tongue and language and people group. This is far more glorious than if he took the throne in Jerusalem in A.D. 33 because a bunch of people wanted him to. Don't you think? This is a way more glorious reality. That he stands as savior of the world from their sins. He illustrates this truth then in verse 24. That word picture is a apt illustration to make clear that the cross must precede the crown. Crucifixion comes before coronation. It's a, a simple and profound illustration of truth taken from everyday life in an agrarian culture. Everybody had seen this or knew it at least. I speak to a crowd of people who know this well in our farming community. You understand the grain of wheat must fall into the ground. As long as it's in the bin In storage until next year, it is kept alone. It's kept safe. It maintains and retains its life inside of it. It's fine by itself. Nothing happens to it. It's it's doing just fine. But once you put that thing into the ground, there's a reaction that happens by God's design in which that seed now dies. Moisture and minerals enter into the seed the reaction of the seed elements produce a massive explosion of the seed where the root goes down and the shoot goes up. And over a matter of of days and weeks and months, a large plant appears out of that small, tiny seed. And at the top of that plant, it produces a head out of which I'm told 30 to 50 kernels of wheat form all from one little seed that went down into the ground and died. Now, that seed stayed out of the ground. It stays by itself. It's got its happy little wheat seed life, doing its happy little wheat seed stuff. But once it goes into the ground, it dies. It is no longer. And it produces and gives way to 50 times its own life multiplies itself, and in each of those wheat kernels, now they have life-giving potential. Its life lives on in its fruit with the potential to give life again. Beloved, stand amazed at the design of God, not just the natural way these things work, and by natural I mean according to His plan. Stand amazed that in that design he has given you a picture of what happens spiritually for you. He has made clear in the physical world that which is true in the spiritual world over and over and over again. Just open your eyes and start observing and you will see spiritual truth lived out in real life day in and day out. Jesus makes that clear through his illustration here saying this is how the Son of Man is to be glorified. He'll fall into the ground and he will die so that he can bear much fruit. These Greeks were seeking for a king, but first they must find a sacrificial savior. He must first give his life so to make way for their entrance into his kingdom. And that way would be through the giving of his very life. The spiritual law presented by Jesus and illustrated in verse 24 is that the way up is the way down. The way to coronation is through crucifixion. The way to the crown is through the cross. And then Jesus takes that truth and applies it in verses 25 and 26, and he applies it to any and all who would come after him in faith. So he's plainly stated the truth, he's illustrated the truth, and now he takes that truth and he applies it to his listeners. Obviously not just the Greeks, but everyone who is within earshot and by God's kindness to everyone who holds a copy of the scriptures in their hand. Whoever loses, excuse me, whoever loves his life, Jesus says, loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. He obviously means by loving your life, you're refusing to fall into the ground and die. And he means by hating your life that you're willing, you give yourself to him in submission to him to fall into the ground and die. And by doing this, this is the nature of faith, you, Jesus says, gain eternal life. Giving up your life here, you gain the life which is to come just so you don't miss it, if you love your life here, you're hating it there. If you hold fast to life in this world, you hate life in the world to come. You're living for today and you will be sorry tomorrow. But if you hate your life here, that does not mean you despise it and have all kinds of wicked thoughts about it. It just means you're willing to not grasp onto it, cling to it, but you Give it to Christ in faith. You lay it down so it can go into the ground and die. You are loving it in the life to come. You have your eyes of faith beyond right now to a greater eternal reality. Notice there's only two options here. You either love life now and are like the grain of wheat that sits in the grain bin, unwilling to go into the ground, living your wheat seed life for no purpose. Or you're like the grain of wheat that is put into the ground. You are willing, giving yourself to Christ. You lose your life in the immediate, but you gain that which is far greater in the long run. To be clear, I want to end by telling you that this is not the first time Jesus has talked about this. In his last year of life, no less than five times has he he said something exactly like this. I want to walk you through that. You don't have to turn to these texts. You sure can. You can write them down and look at them later. Matthew 16. Jesus is just asked the disciples, hey, who do people say that I am? They answer him. Then he says, who do you say that I am? Peter responds with that great confession that you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus responds with joy in that statement. Says, upon this rock, I'll build my church. That great promise of his coming work in the church. And then he, from That time, Matthew says, began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer and die and rise again. So flowing out of the confession, you're the son of the living God. Through the promise, I will build my church. Now he says, this is how that's going to happen. I'm going to go to Jerusalem, and I'm going to lay down my life. I'm going to die at the hands of religious leaders. You remember Peter, pugnacious Peter, Persistent Peter. Shoe in his mouth, sandal in his mouth, Peter. Hears Jesus say that and rebukes, he pulls him aside, thankfully, and rebukes Jesus and says, may that never be true of you. Let this never happen to you. Jesus stands corrected. Thank you, Peter, for setting me straight. Let's go about our... No! He rebukes him with strong terms. Get behind me Satan you know that so well it has lost its effect on your heart here's the incarnate son of God saying to one of his disciples you are filled with satanic thought right now get behind me and follow and then he says your mind are on the things of man not on the things of God and then he goes on to say to all of his disciples He teaches them and says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Don't blunt the tip of that sword. Luke 9, we read of great crowds that are following Jesus. This is after the transfiguration of Jesus. This is after what we read about in Matthew 16. The disciples are seen arguing about who would be greatest in the kingdom. They, they see the great glory of Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration and they start wanting to be first in the kingdom and who will be greater. And Jesus is then brought people in the crowd who want to follow him in that context. And Jesus says to them, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. In other words, you you really want to follow me? This is what it's going to cost you. To another he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead, but as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Then in Luke 14, we find Jesus in Perea. This is after the Feast of Dedication in Jerusalem. And before he comes to Bethany to raise Lazarus from the dead, it's within his last six months of life, he's in Perea avoiding the vicious plots of the Sanhedrin He is wildly popular in Perea. There's a ton of people around him seeking him, following him, lauding him, and praising him, and he warns them. He turns to the crowd, and he says in Luke 14, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple." Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Then in verse 33, he says, So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Again, in Luke 18, as Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem for his final Passover, he says something similar. He's accosted by a rich young ruler who is self-presuming and self-assured and self-confident and self-satisfied. Lord, what must I do to enter into your kingdom? Well, you know the law. What is it? Keep it. Oh, I've kept them all from my youth. Jesus, perceiving that he was a man of great means, said, go sell all that you have and come follow me. The man turns away from Jesus sorrowful because he had great riches. He chose in that moment wealth over Christ, riches over discipleship, money over eternity. And Jesus turned and said how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. See, this man was too earthly-minded to be any heavenly good. He was too full of himself to receive any of the grace of Christ. He was too rich to be able to renounce it all and become eternally rich in Jesus his Lord. Then in Mark 10, we read of James and John prompted along by their mother. Remember that scene? It's hilarious. It is very funny. Pushing them along to ask the Lord, can we sit on your right? Can we sit on your left? When we enter into the kingdom, You can hear the the giddy junior hirishness of the whole exchange. And into that context, as they ask for prominence in the kingdom, Jesus says to them, you must be servant of all. In the context, by the way, Jesus has just foretold his death for the third time to his disciples. In just a matter of months, he has said to them as clearly as he knows how, I am going to Jerusalem, my head is set to Jerusalem, my face is steel like flint for Jerusalem, and I am going to die. And in the context of his professed, prophesied death, they come saying, hey, can we sit on the right and the left? Jesus says to them, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. And then he roots that command in his own life and example. He says, for even the Son of Man, sound familiar? Even the Son of Man, from John 12, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Friend, the call to follow Christ is not a self-serving and self-exalting call. It's not an invitation that appeals to the flesh or that makes the path in this life smoother and more delightful and easier to walk. This is what we want from Jesus in our flesh. We want the broad way that is easy to walk leading to eternal life. Jesus said it is a narrow way. It is hard to walk and few there be that find it. We want a flowery path of ease leading to ultimate eternal joys in the kingdom of God. We want the crown without the crucifixion. We want the coronation without the cross. We want Jesus to be the fulfillment of all of our self-indulgent wants. Jesus says, I will not be a savior on your terms. I will not be a king under your rule. I will not be a Lord submitting to your throne. If we are to be in Christ and to be following Christ, then this is what it looks like to go after Jesus. It looks like self-sacrifice. He says in John 12, 26, if we are to follow him, we must serve him. I think he says it the other way. If we are to serve him, we must follow him. The point being that this is not the absence of God's grace. This is not a, a call to earn God's grace. Serve him through self-sacrifice so you can enter into, eternal, into the eternal kingdom. That's not what's going on here. This is the product of grace. This is because new life enters into you by his grace and through your faith. Your life now looks like His life. Your life can't be left as it is. It can't be left with all its self-indulgent, self-promoting, self-sustaining, self-interested wants and desires dominating everything you do. No, if you have the life of Christ in you, that life in you is inherently self-sacrificial. And when it comes out of you, it will look like less of you and more of your Savior. If faith is the hands by which we grab on to Christ, which I think is a helpful metaphor and analogy. In faith, we, we grab to Christ and Our salvation is not by the strength of our grip. It is by the strength of the Savior to whom we hold, to whom we grab by faith, believing that everything he has said and done is sufficient to save us. No matter how weak that faith is, we grab and hold on to Christ. If those hands of faith grab on to Christ, they must let go of all that is me. I must lay down all that is my kingdom as I believe in this new king who gave his life on a cross so that I can enter in under his throne and his reign into his kingdom. You cannot add Jesus to all that you already were and are He cannot become the avenue through which you attain all the popularity and recognition you were already hoping for. He refuses to be a servant to make much of you in this life. Rather, he shows you the way to give yourself in service to him. Can I say it as clearly as I know how? You may not be in Christ if you want him to serve you, but you don't want to serve him. You might not be in Christ if you revel in his death for your salvation, but you are then unwilling to follow him in selfless sacrifice. For that is the call of your Savior through his cross to his followers. Deny yourself, pick up your cross, which means you're heading to your execution. Someone carrying a cross has no thoughts of what life's going to look like in 10 years. They've laid aside their plans, their hopes, their dreams. All that they own is no longer preeminent in their mind. They are on a path of sacrifice. Jesus says, if you serve me, you must follow me. Be just like me, falling into the ground and dying. This is why Paul says, I do not count my my life dear unto myself but willingly give myself for the sake of others. This is what requires him in Galatians 2 to daily die as he reckons himself dead to self and all of its lust and made alive unto God through Christ. That's why Paul says in Galatians 2 verse 20 that he is crucified with Christ, therefore he no longer lives, but Christ lives in him and the life he now lives in the flesh, he lives by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That, beloved, that inherently means if you're living a life that is conformed to Christ, it will look like his life that is loving and self-giving. He promises you if you do this, that he will be with you. He promises you that if you have this faith, that the Father will honor you. He says that in verse 26. Is there any more succinct and more glorious statement of heaven than those two things? You'll be with Jesus and you'll be honored by the Father. Other texts say you'll be enthroned with Christ. You'll reign with Christ. You'll be rich in the riches of Christ. You'll be right in the righteousness of Christ. You'll be blessed in the blessings of Christ. This is heaven. You'll be with Jesus. Finally, your faith will turn into sight and you'll be honored by the Father. This is the faith Jesus calls you to in this text. And so I ask you, friend, is your faith marked by a lot of self and a little bit of Christ? Is it a cheap grace that costs Christ everything and costs you nothing? Is your following of Christ nothing more than you trailing after him looking for the prominence and ease that will come as he gives you more of his blessings? Are you happy to rejoice in the sacrifice of others but slow to give of yourself and sacrifice for our Lord? This is a costly, radical grace that produces eternal change in those who believe in Christ. I close with a quote from Dietrich Dietrich Bonhoeffer who spent his final days in jail for his commitment to Christ. In his book, The Cost of Discipleship, he describes costly grace this way. He says, such grace is costly because it calls us to follow And it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs a man his life. And it is grace because it gives a man the only true life. It is costly because it condemns sin. And grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it is costly because it cost God the life of his son. You were bought at a price. And what has cost God much cannot be cheap for us above all it is grace because god did not reckon his son too dear a price to pay for our life but delivered him up for us costly grace is the incarnation of god let's pray father in heaven thank you for this text i pray that you would take these truths and apply them to the hearts of each individual in this room Lord, I beg of you for them to do business with you, to hear the call of true faith and following after your son, to use that to evaluate their own standing before you. Lord, I pray that you would keep any of those who are in Christ from being discouraged or disheartened, but call them to pick up arms and be soldiers for you, equipped by your grace to battle this war of faith you've called us to. For those who don't know Christ, Father, I beg of you to strip away their deception and to bring them to true eternal life in your Son. In his name we pray, amen.